From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. You know, it's interesting. When you don't do something live, you are glad you didn't do it live. I don't know what the, the, the aura over the whole thing is, but the third time's a charm. And we're gonna get we're gonna get this taken care of here. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Um, we won't be taking your calls today, but if you'd like to be part of a future mailbag program, you can send us an email, openline at ewtn.com, or you can text your question, text the letters EWTN to five five zero zero zero. Wait for a response. Text your first name and your question message, and data rates may apply. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program, and our host is he is every Monday, Father John Tregilio, for the third time. How are you? I'm doing well for the third time. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna get fancy this time. I'm gonna jump right into the emails. Okay. And a very Go simple right one. Very simple one right off the bat here. Um, from Peter, interestingly enough, are we saved by faith alone? No. <laughs> Real simple. Uh, we are saved by faith and our good works. It's by grace that we are actually, uh, we receive salvation. And f- as St. James tells us, you know, faith without works is empty. And if it were just works alone, that would be the heresy of Pelagianism. So it's not fideism, it's not Pelagianism, it's both faith and works, which obviously are motivated by God's supernatural gift, which we call grace. Jonathan would like to know, actually says, my brother does not understand purgatory, and he believes that purgatory would take away from the fact that Jesus died for our sins. How can I answer this point? Well, Jesus did uh, die for our sins, uh, but purgatory... Again, rather than seeing it as purely penal, uh, see it in a medicinal aspect that uh, uh, the word purgatory comes from the word purgatus, that means cleanse. And the cleansing of purgatory is is uh, something that the souls want to have done to them because they want to be clean and spotless when they enter into heaven. They don't want to go. It's sort of like you know if you got invited to the governor's mansion uh, or to the White House, You'd want to look your best, and so you would get your hair cut, and you know you'd wash your face and behind your ears, as your mother would say. You'd want to be uh, look your best because of where you're going and and who is your host. And likewise, because we're going into heaven, uh, purgatory allows us to wash away those attachments to sins. So it's not that we're being uh, punished per se, like the pain of punishment of hell. But the pain of purgatory is that cleansing, that attachment to sin. And as I often tell people, uh, purgatory evens out things too. Because uh, if if you're truly sincere and contrite at the moment of your death, uh, God will forgive you uh, if you make a perfect act of contrition. However, what if you lived a whole life of, of horrible evil and sin? Yes, God forgives you, but there's a lot of a, a past attachment that needs to be cleansed off. So that when you do go through those pearly gates, nobody says to themselves, how did he get in? <laughs> a, uh, I'm starting to give out the phone number. Old habits die hard. <laughs> this is a ma- very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. So we're not taking those phone calls today, but you can send us an email at openline 
at EWTN.com, and you might be part of a future mailbag show. Susan wants to know what the difference between repentance and saying you're sorry for your sins is. Okay, um, saying you're sorry, obviously, is is important, but repentance is that attitude, that re- re- resolution, that you're going to do your best to avoid these things in, in the future. Uh, we call it the firm purpose of amendment. So repentance is the not only the sorrow for your sin, but your acknowledgement that you shouldn't have done it to begin with, and you're going to do everything you can to avoid it in the future. Here's a good one from Lawrence, and he wants to know, has there been any new Catholic ideas on birth control since Humanae Vitae? I feel like the Catholic view is sort of a man-centric idea. <laughs> uh, well, uh, no, it's not really man-centric. It's theocentric, centered on God. God established the natural law that we uh, live our, our ethical life by, and of course, Jesus Christ, you know, became uh, uh, assumed uh, human nature with his divine nature uh, in his one divine person in the incarnation, and he taught uh, us how to live a, a holy and, and moral life. Uh, so, you know, the whole thing of, of birth control, uh, we want people to realize that, as Humani Vitae says by Pope Paul VI, uh, the two ends of marriage are both unity uh, and uh, love. And unity is that the coming together of of the husband and wife, but also that openness to children, the the newness of life. So you're allowed to use natural uh, methods to ascertain when a woman's infertile periods are. A married couple can have relations during that time so they can space out the births uh, in in a way that they're able to financially and emotionally to, to maintain. But... You know, biology doesn't hasn't changed. Um, you know, women have fertile periods and they have infertile periods. Uh, what obstructs that or messes things up is when you introduce artificial means uh, like the birth control pill, which in actuality works not as a birth prevention. What it does is, you know, the egg is fertilized, and so you do have an embryo, but it uh, it spontaneously has uh, the woman eject that, and that's what we call uh, an abortifacient. So it's not an actual uh, contraception. It's more of a bortifacient. Uh, the old rhythm method obviously has been replaced uh, through natural family planning with much more accurate scientific methods, which involve both the, the husband and the wife. So it's not just one person's responsibility. You know, and that partially answers Marion's question as well, because she says, if the aim is to avoid pregnancy within a marriage, why is NFP better than any other method? Yeah, the, the end is not ultimately just to prevent a pregnancy. It's to plan, to space out so that um, obviously, uh, uh, you know, my mother had my two last brothers. Uh, they were only nine months apart. And that's not necessarily an easy thing. A lot of women uh, have been able to do that. Uh, but uh, the rest of me and my brothers were, you know, two years apart. Um, and so if you're able to space uh, the children out, it's obviously a little bit uh, easier from mom and dad. So you're not in this absolute sense saying we're, we're doing everything we can to prevent uh, conception. We're reasonably using the natural methods that God has developed and designed within human nature and that our intellect can ascertain. But it's not an absolute saying we don't want kids because there's always the implicit 
um, acceptance that if God blesses us with a new life, a new child, we will certainly accept it. Whereas in absolute uh, idea that you don't want kids at all, and that's why um, ster- uh, sterilization is also considered uh, immoral as well as using artificial means like the birth control pill. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. So we're not taking your phone calls today, but you can send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. All right, here you go. Let's just let's just knock out the entire uh, 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 category uh, here today on Open Line Monday's mailbag program. Rob wants to know why the church is against in vitro fertilization. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad he asked that because a lot of people are little bit fuzzy on on that. In vitro fertilization is what we call artificial conception. Just like we have artificial contraception, we have artificial conception. And uh, what is happening is they're taking uh, eggs, whether, first of all, it's from a donor, that's considered uh, immoral because you're only supposed to use the egg of the the mother, the the wife, and the sperm of the dad and, and the father. But also that the, that the act of conception takes place within the woman's body itself. In vitro, whether it's done in a Petri dish or a test tube, one of the major defects of it on a moral stance, besides the artificial aspect, is they fertilize more than one egg. And they will then have like maybe three, four, five or more um, embryos. And then they take one or two and implant them. And then the rest that are left over, they either freeze or they destroy. And that's considered abortion. Many people don't realize that's what happens in in vitro. They do not just take one egg uh, and one sperm. They take uh, a number of fertilized eggs, which at at the moment of fertilization then become embryos. They're human beings. They have an immortal soul. So even if they just freeze them, that's considered an immoral practice. And those embryos are... You know, we kind of, I think we get sterilized by the vocabulary sometimes. Those are developing humans, huh? That's right. At the very moment of conception, uh, the embryo is a human being. Uh, It's, uh, that's when the soul is created. And that's why, you know, um, whether it's in vitro or the abortifacient that we mentioned just a few minutes ago, you are killing a human being. Again, this is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. We're emptying out the mailbag. If you'd like to be part of a future program, send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. You know, EWTN has a weekly e-newsletter. It's called Wings, and you can find out about EWTN radio and TV shows, items from religious catalog, a whole lot more. Just sign up for Wings at EWTN.com and look for the subscribe button. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. Uh, Karen has written in via email, and she says, I'm struggling with the idea of no salvation outside the Catholic Church. I'm a convert, and I have friends who aren't Catholic. Are they damned? Um, 
hopefully no. <laughs> um, a person is damned by their own free will decision to go against God. Um, now, it is true that the baptism and um, belong, becoming um, a full member of God's of God's holy family, um, particularly in joining the, the, the Catholic Church, is necessary for salvation because we believe Jesus and the Church are salvific. But a person is only held responsible for what they know. And if someone does not know that they that the church is necessary, they are not going to be penalized for what they don't know. We call this invincible ignorance. So if somebody in good faith, you know, lives a good, moral, virtuous life and does not objectively, overtly, deliberately reject Christ and reject his Catholic church, then they can, in fact, be saved. But once a person realizes this, then they must follow that through. They must uh, seek membership and participation uh, in that. And the problem is, as Fulton Sheen once said, um, 95% of the people who, who are against the Catholic Church are not against the Catholic Church as she is. It's as they believe it to be. It's their perception of Catholicism as opposed to what it really is, does, and teaches. And that's where our job comes in, uh, to evangelize, to catechize, uh, the truth and share that with others. So, uh, as St. Augustine said, God gives everyone sufficient grace to be saved, but it's efficacious only for those who actually uh, cooperate, work with it. There's a wonderful document that came out uh, many, uh, several years ago, Dominus Jesus, uh, that explains that the church's teaching, uh, outside the church there's no salvation, but it's not the uh, teaching that came from uh, Father Feeney in Boston in the 1930s, where he said you had to be a card-carrying member of the Catholic Church. If you're not registered, say, in a Catholic parish, you know, then you're, you're doomed to hell. Uh, the Church never believed that. But the Church does believe she is necessary for salvation. But a lot of people just don't realize they're being saved without their consciousness of that. They're being saved with by Christ and through the Church. So uh, that's why, again, we are obligated to share the faith to people. But the best way of showing that is by living it ourselves. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. We won't be taking your phone calls today. Linda writes in, how is an annulment justified in the Catholic Church? Well, annulment is justified because what an annulment actually is, it's not the equivalent of a Catholic divorce. A divorce is a legal thing that from the state that says a legal marriage is now legally ended. An annulment says that the sacrament never existed from day one. And that's just uh, a matter of, of fact. And so what an annulment does is it goes back to the day of the wedding and when the consent was exchanged between the husband and wife, if there is a, a, a serious impediment. For example, the most typical ones were, if and still are, if uh, one or both of them intended never to have children, if one or both of them intended this not to be um, a faithful union, they were going to cheat on each other, or if one or both of them intended this would not be permanent. Those three are absolutely essential, uh, but they're not only the, they're not the only uh, impediments that we would look for. Also, um, in terms of somebody's capacity, somebody who's got a very serious psychological um, problem, if somebody um, has emotional issues that are very serious, then that can in, uh, affect the, the, the legitimate consent that's given. So annulment is not a fiction, it's an establishment of a fact. Okay, now we move over to the category of grace for Father Trujillo. Nathan wants to know, do you have to be in the state of grace to receive grace? 
Oh, that's an excellent question. I wish my seminarian students would ask such things. <laughs> Obviously, you uh, when you receive sanctifying grace by baptism, what's happening is the the first God cleanses you of the original sin and then infuses within you uh, that sanctifying grace. But then as soon as we commit a mortal sin, uh, we, we push it all out, and God gives us the grace so that we would repent and then go to confession so that we can then have that sanctifying grace restored. So, yes, God can give us, in fact, we need that grace to repent, but we have to cooperate with it. So we have those two different uh, types of grace, sanctifying grace that we get through the sacraments and actual grace, which is the grace that empowers us uh, to do a holy and, and sanctified work. So, yes, you you can be without grace to be able to receive it, but it's, again, everything is a free gift from God, and you and I need to work with it. And it's almost as if Martin were listening to the program before it aired, and uh, he says, <laughs> what is sanctifying grace, and how does it differ from actual grace? Okay, and, well, to, and to just further continue this, sanctifying grace makes us a child of God. Sanctifying grace is something that comes uh, directly to us from the sacraments. Actual grace, I like to uh, make it akin to, you know, that, that Energizer bunny rabbit that's going around banging his little drum. <laughs> well, the batteries are giving him the power to do that. Actual grace is that supernatural gift from God that uh, gives us the ability to do good things. But sanctifying grace is the most essential one because that's what makes us a child of God that's what uh, uh, justifies us in the eyes of God, and that is your way of getting into heaven. You must have sanctifying grace uh, to get into heaven. Jerome writes in, I just found the Lord again in my life. What denomination of church should I attend? I'm having a hard time with the idea of the Pope. Why should I pick the Catholic <laughs> Church over other Christian churches? Well, uh, it, it's more than just picking. I can understand where you know we're we're, one, we're very happy that you know you've uh, you know embraced the the faith to begin with, but see, Catholicism is not just one branch or form of other uh, Christian denominations, but as we see it, it is the fullness. Uh, it is the Church Jesus established because even though you may have some problems with the Pope, Jesus founded the Church on Saint Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church, in Matthew's Gospel. And all the popes from Peter on, okay, they are connected. We, we say the pope is the successor of St. Peter. There's been an unlo unbroken chain from St. Peter all the way to Pope Francis. And in the Catholic faith, we have the fullness of truth. We have both sacred scripture and sacred tradition. We have the fullness of grace. We have all seven sacraments. And therefore... We see the church as the full, full expression of what Jesus intended and what Jesus actually gave us. In terms of the other denominations, they have a participation in that to some degree. But that's why we say when someone comes into the, into the church um, who is already baptized, we call coming, uh, re being received into full communion with the Catholic Church because they had a partial union when they were, say, baptized in the Methodist or Presbyterian or Lutheran uh, churches. But by becoming Catholic, you are receiving the fullness of that. And if you look at that as saying, which is the one that Jesus started, instituted, which is the one church that's going to give me all that's available, not just some, but all of it, then you will find that it is in the Catholic Church. 
Uh, again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. We won't be taking your phone calls today. You know, Father John, we, we have you know wonderful programs like The Journey Home here on EWTN with Marcus Grodi, who has done such great work over the years helping uh, our evangelical brothers and sisters who may find themselves in ministry and are drawn to the Catholic Church. And so many of them have some similarities about their stories. And one of the things that you see frequently is when they started to read the early church fathers, it became apparent to them what the church they were describing was. And Yelena writes in and she says, how can I know if the writings of the early church fathers are reliable and authentic? Uh, well, that, that's a good question, too. And, you know, we had a f- few cases where some of them started out okay and then, you know, went off on a different tangent, different path. Um, one of the things that you can use as a sort of litmus test is something called the Vincentian Canon. It's from uh, Vincent of Lorenz that uh, that which has been taught at all times in all places by all credited teachers uh, is a way of measuring what, because just because someone is in that, era of the the fathers of the church does not make them de facto a father of the church. This is something that the church designates. They had to uh, have lived in a certain time. Uh, Their teachings must be consistent and in harmony with what the church has taught uh, before and at that time. So it's not enough to just say this was the guy who lived next door, all right, to, um, um, you know, uh, St. Augustine or something like that. This is an established fact and the church, because remember, it's sacred tradition and sacred scripture. Uh, part of the apostolic uh, ministry is that we use both, uh, because both came from God, and one cannot contradict the other. So scripture doesn't contradict sacred tradition, and sacred tradition can't uh, contradict uh, what's in the Bible. They go hand in hand, because they're both from the same source, the Holy Spirit. All right, here's 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 one that, that is... Worthy of being answered every so often, because a lot of people have wonders about it, especially when certain things happen in our culture. Gregory wants to know what the Church teaches about the death penalty. Well, uh, I'm glad he asked that, too, because we see just most recently Pope Francis tweaked um, the catechism a a little bit, and Pope John Paul II, who is the one who authorized and promulgated the catechism, the Catholic Church, back in 1992, he himself tweaked it uh, a little bit. The church has always taught that the, the state has the the right to use the death penalty, but it's not an absolute right. It has to be used uh, in a very specific parameter. And what Pope John Paul II uh, uh, mentioned in Evangelium Vitae, and also what was taught also by Pope Benedict, and now by Pope Francis, is that it seems that it is no longer necessary to use the death penalty uh, because there are other means, because it always the moral use of it had to be this was uh, um, the last means possible. Every other opportunity was considered or use uh, considered um, uh, either unusable or ineffective, and certainly you know incarceration for the rest of this person's life or the possibility of rehabilitation. So the intrinsic uh, value of this is now put in the context, and that's the key here. It's the context, because uh, people say, well, how is it that you, you could do it before, now you can't? Well, even in the past, the church never gave carte, said it was carte blanche for the state to use it anytime it wanted to, because obviously some states had it, some states didn't. 
in some instances, in the state that did have a death penalty, if you had a, a very good lawyer and you could pay for all the expenses, you could maybe get off where someone who was poor wasn't able to. So that's the key here is that it's, it's the context, and that's been the teaching of the church all along. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Not taking your phone calls, but you can send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. It's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. This email comes to us from Sam, and he says, Is the book of Revelation about things that have already happened, or is it a book of prophecy? We often hear that the rapture is coming, and I wonder what the Catholic teaching is on this. Well, first of all, the, the book of Revelation, or sometimes is also called the Apocalypse, has both some prophecy but also it has, um, and prophecy in the, in the sense that most people understand prophecy as something about in the future. But when you go in the Old Testament, most prophets did not necessarily foretell the future. Most prophets just told you what God, the message he wanted you to know that at that time. Um, so in the book of Revelation or in the Apocalypse, we have things that are about to happen, but also things are happening at that moment. And uh, Scott Hahn's wonderful book on uh, the book of Revelation gives us this beautiful context that uh, most of the imagery, the symbolism that's involved in the book of Revelation is liturgical. It's describing the divine liturgy that's happening at this moment and happens for all eternity in heaven. So that many times people get caught up in, well, who's the Antichrist? What's the mark of the beast? You know, is it 666? Is Damien Thorne going to come out of nowhere? Uh, from the, like the movie The Omen. Uh, no, the, these are images. It's what they call apocalyptic literature. It certainly is true. It's inspired, but it's not written as a per se historical narrative. That being the case, there are things in there. Like we do believe there is going to be the final battle between good and evil. The rapture that most people are so concerned about isn't isn't even in that book. Uh, it, it's alluded to. Uh, in the Gospels, and Jesus says, uh, "One will be, you know, two people will be sleeping in bed. One will be taken. One will be left behind." And the word "rapturus" uh, in the Latin is where they get the word "rapture," and all that means is that when one is taken, they don't, it doesn't say in the text where they're being taken to. People just presume that means they're being taken to heaven, uh, but that's only that's what's in, maybe implied or uh, you know insinuated. But I would say if you're left behind, that's not a bad thing because if you're still alive, you still have the possibility of repentance. Whereas if you die in your sleep, that determines where you're going to spend uh, eternity if, in heaven or hell. If you're not in the state of grace when you die and you were taken, that's not a good thing. Uh, the only time you know it would not be good that you were not taken is if you're in the airplane, <laughs> they took the pilot, and you're still on the plane. You better make a very good act of contrition then. Hey, uh, well, there I go, twice. <laughs> okay, strike two. I've got to protect the plate now in this All very right. special mailbag edition of EWTN's 
Open Line Monday. Frank writes in and he says, Can you clarify for some Orthodox Christians the doctrine of the Sacred Heart of Jesus? Some say Catholics are worshiping the physical body of Jesus. Well, I mean, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that because Jesus is God. He is God and man. And so he's one divine person, but his body is an extension of himself. Just like you and if, if, if you step on my toe and you don't say I'm sorry, I take offense because my toe is part of me. Any extension of me that's alive, like my hair, my, my feet, uh, is, is me. As much me as it's not just my soul that is me. What I identify as the I when I look in the mirror is all of me. So Jesus' heart is a part of who he is in terms of his hypostatic union. And our adoration of his heart isn't just that we're worshiping an organ. It's that it represents uh, the love of Christ. And we still use these terminologies today in the 21st century. You know, I love you with all my heart. My heart aches. Okay, when someone says, oh, you stab me in the heart. It's more than just saying, oh, someone stuck a, a pin or a needle or a scalpel heart, but the heart is still an important part of your body, and, and um, you know, I I have this thing called AFib, and I remember when they ran electricity through my heart a few times. Uh, it's an important part of who you are, so uh, I, I don't see any uh, pro problem or issue with that, but it's in the context, too, that the heart represents uh, the love that a person has. I understand that when that occurred that some of your former students were a little surprised that you had a heart. <laughs> One guy asked if I had a light bulb in my hand like Uncle Fester. I said no. <laughs> oh, goodness. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Barry says, my Baptist friend says that if we aren't saved by Jesus' blood on the cross, then he died in vain. How do I respond to her when she says we are saved by his blood and don't need to do anything else? Well, we are saved by his blood um, in the sense that, you know, he shed his blood for us and he allowed uh, the doors of heaven to be open. Um, I make this distinction between redemption and salvation. Uh, Jesus redeemed us on the cross, so he made salvation possible. But the actual act of salvation occurs when you are in heaven. Uh, if you're on a boat and you fall over and somebody throws you a life preserver, okay, uh, that is sort of like the act of, of, of redemption. They're enabling you to be saved. But you're only saved once you get back onto the boat itself. Because if you're on that life preserver, but but you're not, I mean, you're just floating there, you could still not be saved. you got to get back onto the boat. And so salvation occurs when we are actually in heaven. Jesus makes it possible because before it wasn't even, there was no life preserver whatsoever. We were all drowning out in the sea, so to speak. So, yes, his blood makes salvation possible, but it becomes effective the moment that you and I actually get there. And so that's why his redemptive act on Good Friday is so important. Got a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. It's time to put on your Catholic um, social uh, commentary beretta. And uh, Mary writes in and she says, Why do you think so many people who go through Catholic school stop going to Mass? Part of it, I think, is spiritual laziness. 
I mean, to be honest, I and, and I mean, we all we all get tempted to in in that sense to slack off a little bit. I think a lot of other uh, reasons would be some people, you know, uh, they have they still have a, a third, fourth, sixth, or maybe eighth grade understanding of the Catholic faith, but then they have a a twenty one year old understanding of physics and the economy and everything else. So it's keeping your Catholic intellect up to snuff, up to what it should be. And that's why we have ongoing uh, formation. We have ongoing education. Uh, it's not enough just to know what you knew when you were to get confirmed as a kid. So making yourself um, available, reading the catechism, reading papal encyclicals, reading a good Catholic literature, watching or listening to EWTN, uh, that keeps you up to date. And the problem is a lot of people who don't go, Catholics don't go to church anymore they don't see what they're turning their back on. If they realized, you know, their soul needs, Jesus said, my, my flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. You must eat my body. You must drink your, my blood. These aren't options. He's saying you must do this if you want to stay alive spiritually. And if I think about that hard enough, it's like saying, I don't want to breathe anymore. Well, you know, just stop remove the oxygen in, in a room once or go scuba diving and don't turn on the uh, oxygen tanks and you'll, you'll know fast enough how much you need that O2 to stay alive. Spiritually, we need the sacraments. We need especially the Holy Eucharist. And when people, Catholics, forget about that and think they could get by on the bare minimum, you know, that's like a person in the hospital on, on an IV. You know, it's, it's life support, but it's not life to the fullest. That's the answer of the day so far. Um, <laughs> it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Christopher says, here's one for you, Father, you ready? Is there a special place in heaven for priests and deacons? Different <laughs> different than the place for lay people. If we get there, we're, we're happy, okay? <laughs> we have a lot of responsibility because too much is given, much is expected. You're not, there's, the levels of heaven are not designated by what your vocation was. Um, all the great saints have shown us that, you know, anyone, because obviously who's the, in the highest rank in heaven uh, is the Blessed Mother. She was no priest. She was no deacon. She was no bishop or cardinal or pope. Uh, and St. Joseph is right next to her. Um, so the grace of holy orders doesn't mean that I got a higher place in heaven. What gets me in a higher level, so to speak, would be, the more each one of us who are baptized uh, cooperate with God's grace, and we it can, it's like a, a balloon. The more air you put into it, the larger it gets. And so the more grace I receive, the more I'm able to work with. And so, again, it's not the bare minimum, like life support. It's that I aggressively, every day, want to grow in virtue and holiness. So um, someone like Mother Teresa of Calcutta, I think, is probably as close as you can get up there and if there and whatever priests and deacons are there you know we're just glad we got through the gates daniel writes in he says i'm a protestant and i like to hear of bridges that catholics and protestants can use to minister together i'd like to get your perspective father on where we can unite for the gospel as well as where union would not be possible okay well i'm glad he said that when i was newly ordained i was stationed in a parish uh, in the Harrisburg Diocese, and I was uh, involved with the ministerium. That's the gathering of the local, um, you know, religious leaders, you know, the 
the Protestant pastors, the Catholic priest, the Jewish rabbi, and we did work on a few things together. One of the most important things we can do is in the defense of life. The pro-life movement is not just a Catholic enterprise, and so when you go to the March for Life uh, in January, you see not just Catholics, you see Protestants, you see Jews, you see Muslims, uh, even people of, of no faith. So certainly the pro-life movement is one very uh, poignant way that we can work together. And also on any other the, uh, charitable works, uh, helping the poor, the homeless, the unemployed, um, you know, helping uh, help families, people, you know, counseling. Um, uh, you know, Catholic Charities just doesn't take care of Catholics, but uh, people of different uh, faiths and denominations, they're also uh, providing help to. So the, the corporal and spiritual works of mercy are not just the purview uh, of Catholics. Where we do not necessarily work together would be in the actual celebration of the, of the sacrament. So I was not allowed to pulpit share with the, with the nice Protestant minister across the street from me when I was pastor in, in Marysville and Duncannon. Uh, I had some very wonderful Protestant minister neighbors, and we would work together. We'd have like an Advent prayer service. Uh, we would have, um, you know, um, soup and sandwiches for, for Lent. But we didn't swap pulpits. Uh, we didn't have intercommunion. Uh, those are areas where it's more restricted to those of that particular uh, faith and, and church. But in other areas, mostly in, in the social teachings, we're, we're on the same page, I would say, in, in, in a great degree. Georgia writes in, is it best for an infant to not be baptized, <coughs> excuse me, if the parents do not practice the faith and the child will not be taught about the faith? Well, I urge parents who may not, you know, uh, who may not be as, pra as good practicing as they should, if grandma or grandpa or aunt or uncle or uh, a very close friend is going to give moral certitude that this kid will be raised, because in many cases, I, we, every priest I know knows of this, we have a good portion of grandparents who are the catechists of their grandchildren. Mom and dad are just not practicing anymore. Uh, there's an instance where the, as a priest or deacon, I can go ahead and baptize that kid if I have reasonable assurance someone is going to be uh, bringing them into the faith, teaching them, catechizing them, making sure they get to communion, making sure they get to confession, uh, even though mom and dad. Now, sometimes mom and dad realize what they're missing, and particularly whether it's for the kid's first communion or maybe for their confirmation, they decide to spruce up their act. But I would say, you know, uh, we would never deny someone baptism uh, we would always postpone if there was absolutely no assurance anyone was going to uh, raise them in the faith. Because baptism is something that's important. It uh, makes you a child of God. It gives you sanctifying grace. It allows you to be able to resist uh, sin and temptation, not uh, infallibly, but it gives you a bigger edge. It's like if your kid never gets any inoculation against any of the diseases, you know, like uh, measles and smallpox and uh, polio, all those things that, you know, we all had to get um, inoculated against, you know, when we were little kids. Yeah, you can not, you can go through life without those things and not get sick, but it's it's like, you know, it's going to be very difficult. So baptism, I say, is very important, but we just wouldn't want to have a kid baptized and then have no follow-up whatsoever. 
Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we're not taking your phone calls today. Be sure to check out the Holy Rosary this evening with Father Benedict Rochelle, 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Charlotte would like to know, if God gave Adam and Eve the first chance to give sinless life to man on earth, were Joseph and Mary the second chance to give life to a perfect person? Did God send Jesus to make right what Adam and Eve made wrong? Yes, in a sense, because <laughs> we do call Jesus the new Adam and Mary the new Eve. Um, but it's more than just a substitution um, theory, which some people had uh, proposed uh, in centuries past. Whereas Adam being the first man and Eve the first woman, they are the cause of original sin, and that's why we all inherit it. Uh, Jesus is more than just a substitution for Adam because he is not only man, he's also God, and he's the second person of the Trinity. So as the God-man, the incarnation of, of, the, of the divine uh, within uh, the human life, that is more than just replacing Adam. He actually affects uh, our salvation and redemption. Ken asks, I know it's okay to pray to saints for their intercession, but is, it, but is it okay to pray to them not asking for their intersection? For example, can I pray to Mary and ask her and ask for her help, or can I only ask for her intercession? Well, asking her help is asking for intercession because she does not do anything on her own. So if you ask St. Anthony to help find your keys, uh, he's interceding to Jesus for you. And that's sort of like his homework. You know, he, he goes and finds where your keys are, so to speak. But whatever the saints we invoke them uh, for in a particular uh, request, uh, it may not, we, not, we may not enunciate it as such as I'm giving you a prayer of intercession or, or, or making a petition, but that's actually what's happening. Uh, we only adore and worship God, but we do honor uh, the saints. And so even uh, a litany of St. Joseph all right, that's a, a, a way of honoring him, but it's not adoration. Adoration is very distinct and different. It's worship of, of, of a being as being the supreme being that I owe everything to, whereas uh, reverence, um, honor, we're told to honor our father and mother. That's not worship, all right? The first commandment is not negated by, by the fourth and vice versa. We've got a question now from Leo, and I, I can, and I think Leo is an adult here, but I can just—we have a grandson named Leo, and I could just see him asking this question. Uh, he says, "I teach RCIA. One of my students asked if Jesus ever had a cold. <laughs> I said no because he was not touched by original sin. It was my answer correct? Well, it's—it's it's, that's a good hypothesis. The church has never defined, all right, to what extent." Uh, Jesus embraced um, these other uh, aspects of, of human nature because, yes, technically speaking, because he was free of original sin, all the effects, obviously, would also be, be absent. But he did embrace the effects of because one of the, the preternatural gifts that Adam and Eve had before they fell was uh, immortality. They never died, and Jesus obviously died. They also had impassibility, where they never suffered, no pain. Jesus obviously embraced that. Um, the only area where he would not have, um, uh, like there was no concupiscence in Christ. He was always in possession of his 
faculties. Um, his his um, there was no disordering of of his passions. So yeah, hypothetically, he could have had a cold. He could have had sniffles. He could have coughed. He could have had a bellyache. Uh, you know, he certainly did all the other biological things that you and I, as human beings. I mean, he ate and he had a digestive everything else. Uh, whether or not he got sick, he didn't have to get sick. Like you and I, we have no choice. You know, we, we either get sick or we don't. He could have to, in terms of redemption, because he to experience those things, uh, like like us and all things but sin. So the church has never, they feed a defined. Uh, whether or not our Lord would have had, even like, did he have an accident? Did he fall and scrape his knee? You know, did he have a nightmare? Uh, these are all things the church has left open. I would just say the most important thing is, as St. Thomas Aquinas said, focus on what he actually did do. He suffered on the cross and died for us. Uh, Hunter, who is a master of alliteration here, says, if the Pope were to teach something that he didn't have the authority to teach, who has the authority to tell him that he does not have the authority? <laughs> uh, no one. <laughs> there is no one of higher rank than the Pope on earth. Uh, now, that, in terms of his authority, we make a distinction between uh, his teaching authority, which is when he teaches on faith and morals, and he intends this to be binding on the whole church, every member, then it is uh, infallible. Uh, when he makes an ex cathedra statement, or when he can, when he continues what was called the ordinary papal magisterium, what has been taught by his predecessors, um, but his authority, like his authority to appoint bishops, to um, create or suppress dioceses, all right, uh, his those authority he has that even if you if you question his prudential judgment, we still have to uh, uh, accede to because he has that. So. Who judges the Holy Roman Pontiff? No one. No council. No previous popes. No um, nobody. There is no way. Uh, only God Himself uh, outranks Him in that regard. That doesn't mean that all His decisions and edicts are considered, you know, um, inspired um, or even infallible. Only in a very strict uh, circumstance. Uh, Terry writes in. Jesus said, "He and the Father are one." Why then would he call out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? Well, he was quoting the psalm, all right? And the part of the fulfillment of the Messiah was that he was to fulfill scripture. So when Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou abandoned me? That was one of the psalms. So he is, in essence, praying there. And remember, he is God and man. He has a human nature and a divine nature, but he is one divine person. And you can't separate the Son from the Father, so there was not this bizarre heretical notion like they try to tell me in the seminary that uh, Jesus was uh, separate from the Father. You know, the Son is always with, connected to the Father from all eternity. That's the whole essence of the, of the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Uh, God did not abandon Jesus because Jesus was God. But you can feel in your human nature, like Mother Teresa had seven years of desolation where she didn't deny the existence of God, but she felt emotionally that God had sort of uh, left her behind. Jesus didn't feel that, but he obviously, in his human nature, felt the effect of being abandoned, not by God, but in a sense, you know, by humanity, because we're the ones that put him on the cross. And um, 
Rhonda writes in, she says, it seems we cannot say anything against homosexuality without being seen as hateful. Jesus told us to love our neighbor, and it seems loving them would include preventing them from harming themselves and others. Do we have a good rebuttal for those who accuse us of being hateful? Yes, I would say if you do it with charity uh, and in the in, with, with, with discretion as well, because I say we should be consistent. You know, we say homosexuality is wrong because um, it's, it's not part of the natural uh, order, and any and all sexual activity outside of marriage is considered sinful. Well, that applies to heterosexual as well as homosexual. So what about all these heterosexual uh, relationships where people are sleeping together, they're not husband and wife? That is to be condemned as well. It just seems, you know, if if there's a relative or someone that they know they're, they're two homosexual men or, or women, yeah, they're not supposed to be having sexual relations, but neither are unmarried heterosexual couples. And when parents and other people look the other way, you're not being consistent. And that's where I think sometimes uh, the people in the homosexual community uh, can feel a little bit uh, um, distanced there because we're not being consistent. It's not that the church isn't, it's us, our, the, the people. And if we show continuity that any and all sexual activity outside the marriage, which is between one man and one woman, if we keep that and maintain that, then I think you know it, it will be a lot easier, and we won't be considered hateful. It's only hateful when you single out one group as opposed to being uh, contiguous. And in our final little half minute here, Henry says, I'm entering my first diaconate year, which is focused on discernment. Do you have any advice? Persevere. <laughs> Hang in there, because the devil's going to rattle your cage, so to speak. And we have a lot of times guys here in the seminary, they get a little nervous. Persevere because uh, that's part of the discernment is that, you know, you hang in there and, you know, it's, you're not going to just get all these little warm fuzzies all the time. Sometimes you're going to say to yourself, am I really doing the right thing? And persevere, ask for the Holy Spirit to guide you, and certainly open your heart to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Well, Father John, I hope you're surviving your faculty meeting as we speak. So do I. <laughs> Would you leave us with a blessing? Absolutely, man. A blessing, Almighty God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to this mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. We're back at it uh, again tomorrow talking faith, family, and fellowship with Father Wade Menezes. Until then, God bless.